Hello, and welcome back to the Food for Thought podcast. I'm your host, Erin Hallstrom. With me on the podcast today is Gary Nowacki, CEO of Trace Gains. We're talking about what food and beverage processors might expect this year in terms of ingredient costs and supply availability. We launch into a discussion about inflation and disinflation, and how both will play a part in the business strategies of many top food companies. As we attempt to make predictions about the coming year, one thing is for certain. Expect the unexpected. The unexpected plays a big part in the second half of our conversation, where we talk about how CPG manufacturers have pivoted in the last few years, and that many are learning to embrace and build a more agile supply chain. We chat a bit about how food and beverage companies seem to be establishing better partnerships with their employees through benefits and long-term needs, before digging into a conversation about co-manufacturing and how brand owners and co-mans are collaborating to bring new products to market. Enjoy the episode! Gary, welcome to the Food for Thought podcast. Tell me, what's the forecast looking like this year for ingredient costs and supply availability? Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast, Aaron. And this is a great question because, you know, obviously inflation has been such a big issue uh, for, you know, the whole food supply chain, consumers, you know, the Fed, everybody. And the Fed has been <clears throat> using a term a lot lately in their last couple of meetings. I, I never heard this word. They, they came up with a word that was new to me, disinflation. Um, and, and what they mean by that is there's still inflation, but it's slowing down. And so I've been looking at data points just in the last, just in the last week, Aaron, uh, a lot of the big food CPG companies have come out with statements on what they're gonna do for 2023. So, you know, the first kind of bucket I'd put them in, uh, Panagra, Mondelez, and Pepsi, they've all signaled we're going to try not to have any price increases for 2023. We we all did a lot in last year, and we're going to try not to do them again this year. And if we do do them, they're going to be small, much smaller than last year. And then Unilever and Nestle in the last week, they also came out with statements, and they said, you know what, we are going to have price increases, but same deal, it's going to be less than last year. So I think the Fed maybe is right. Maybe we are starting to finally enter a period of disinflation. Inflation, and agree, the the term disinflation, I'd never heard of that before either. And it's a fascinating term. I want to flip to uh, something else that was big and de- a term that I think most people didn't really think about until the last couple of years, and that supply chain. Does it look like we're going to be experiencing the same supply chain issues in 2023 that we've had in the last couple of years? You know, this, uh, Aaron, this is such a tough question. It's really a crystal ball. If we look at what's been happening uh, in the last year, who would have guessed, you know, that egg prices would be up 40%, right? That's just insane. Um, but, you know, if we if we peel back the layers of the onion on that, it's, you know, it's because of avian flu, right? And I, I, I'm not sure anybody saw it coming to the degree that it's landed. 
Um, you know, other surprises, you know, butter up 25% uh, and other things have gone up as well as, uh, as there's been issues with the dairy supply chain. So when we, when we look at what's been going on with inflation over the last year or so, there's a lot of these sort of black swan events right that are just almost unforecastable who knew that you know mr putin was going to cause all these problems that uh with the invasion of ukraine that resulted in skyrocketing prices for a number of things like sunflower oil and grains and and other areas um you know who could have predicted this pandemic right which started three years ago um, who could have predicted that the ocean transport system would seize up? So I think most people are taking out their crystal ball and they're saying, you know, we're hoping that the next shoe doesn't drop here in uh, in 2023. And we're hoping most of these, you know, unforecastable events are behind us. But I don't think I think people have been burned so much. Nobody's taking a stance that, oh, we're, we're good, nothing, nothing bad's going to happen. Um, you know, the one thing of note is the jobs report came out last week, half a million new jobs added. That really surprised a lot of people. And, um, you know, as the Fed has said, uh, with the labor market being so tight, uh, that is one of the levers that continues to exert pressure on inflation. And uh, But on the other hand, they've also said, they're mostly concerned with the tight labor market now really impacting inflation in services, not in goods like food and, you know, all the ingredients. So, um, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say I'm going to guess 2023 is going to be better. Uh, there's going to be less inflation. There's going to be less of these just incredible supply chain disruption issues. But. I think there'll be some, and and at least some of the ones that come up in 2023 will surprise people, just like all the surprises we've been seeing the last couple of years. How have ingredient costs and supply chain issues impacted product development for food and beverage manufacturers? Yeah, it's a great question, and we were so curious about it, we decided to do a survey. You know, we've got... <clears throat> so many customers in the food and CPG space who are willing to participate in a survey. And so we sent one out in June of last year, so about eight months ago, um, at, you know, at the height of all of these problems. And we said, how has this affected you? How have all these supply chain disruptions and surprises and inflation affected you? And uh, they came back with, you know, some really interesting numbers. They said, uh, uh, 37% of the group had to modify more than 20 of their recipes or formulations. And another 25% had to modify between six and 20 of the recipes and formulations. So, you know, you've got, um, what is that? 62%, uh, well over half said, yeah, we had to change our recipes. We had to change the way we make our products. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it could have been holy cow, we were using, uh, you know, sunflower oil, and now we simply can't get it. It's not just that it got more expensive, it's that we can't get it because it's not flowing out of Ukraine. Um, and there's been other, you know, disruptions as well. So companies really had to scramble, and they had to come up with alternative ingredients and these reformulations 
to come up with a you know a product that they could keep on uh, store shelves it was a really interesting dynamic because you know the whole food supply chain as with most supply chains it's been fine-tuned over the last 30 or 40 years to focus you know on three things cost cost and cost and suddenly last year uh, cost was not the priority issue it was can i even get a certain ingredient and so to answer your question companies really had to scramble and it's really impacting them and you know we're we're still seeing it maybe it's maybe it's not quite to the degree it was last year but we're still seeing it as an issue out there in the food supply chain i'll be fascinated to see what years from now people call this past decade and you said something earlier about unforecasted events and all i can think of is unforecasted events and the giant pivot Maybe it's a good band name. Maybe it's how we're going to call the decade. Who knows? All of that is to say, I'm curious from where you're sitting, have you noticed any new strategies uh, CPGs, food companies have implemented to remain competitive among all of these, uh, the scrambling they've had to do or the pivoting that they've had to do? Yeah. And, you know, Aaron, I think maybe there's a silver lining here that, uh, you know, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. Right. And so for these food companies, um, a lot of them uh, have decided, you know, we don't want to get caught with this again when when there's when there's the next major surprise and there will be. We, we just don't know if it's this year, next year, when it's going to be when there's the next major shock to the supply chain. We want to be more agile. And so, you know, this conversation continually comes up that companies are building more agile supply chain. One of the things that surprised us over the years when we talked to our customers is how many folks were relying on single sources for many of their most critical ingredients. And if you rely on a single source for critical ingredient, and then you have this surprise, like like we've been talking about all these different surprises. Wow, you're just absolutely, you know, in trouble, right? And you really need to scramble. So what we're finding is companies are building more agile supply chains where they're going out and looking for alternative suppliers. And I think they're also, with the suppliers they have, they're building closer relationships and partnerships. And it's not just about cost, cost, cost anymore. Sure, cost is still a critical factor, but you know they're 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 looking at a less adversarial relationship with their supply chain partners and ingredient suppliers, so that you know they can have better agility and better insight. So I think you know multiple suppliers, multiple ingredient sources is a big thing. I think the other thing that's going on is companies are working hard to um, to give more benefits to their employees and to establish a better partnership with their employees. As I said, you know, this jobs report and it's continually been job report over the last several years, um, uh, half a million new jobs created last week. Um, you know, unemployment is at very low levels, and I think a lot of companies are no longer taking their work workers for granted, and they're doing things like 
giving better bonuses, giving better special time bonuses to their workers, obviously improving you know, their, their, their basic hourly payroll rates and things like that. But I think they're also going above and beyond that. They're, they're thinking about their employees' long-term needs, whether that's you know, nurturing career development um, or other things, because uh, if there's a scarcity of workers, you've got to be more proactive. You can't just say, well, we had you know, X percentage of our workforce quit last month or last year. Let's go replace them. It's not as simple as that. So these are a couple of the shifts that I'm seeing. And, I, you know, I think it's I think it's good for these companies. I think it's good for our food supply chain. And, you know, ultimately, I think it's good for for people who are working at these companies. I agree with you. I, we've done a series of episodes lately about how different companies are working to um, either find or influence the next generation of the workforce. And I keep hearing in every one of these interviews, it's, yeah, we're we're really looking out for our current employees and we want to make things better Um and keep the great people we have. So I think that's great. And I think the food and beverage industry as a whole is going to do better by kind of maintaining and going, uh, you know, thinking of their employees um, and treating employees better. Speaking of pivoting, um, like we did before, let's you and I pivot and talk about co-manufacturing. How is Trace Gains involved in that? Well, co-manufacturing has been around, um, oh, I'm going to say for 60, 65, 70 years now. And uh, and over the course of that time, it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, probably almost every single year. And, and we don't see this trend stopping. So, you know, if you're a new innovative brand and you've just launched, um, you know, you're focused on marketing and building retail relationships and all these other things. And you you may not have the time or the resources or the money to build your own manufacturing plant. So you're relying on comans. But even if you're an established uh, food or CPG company with deep pockets, if you're moving into a new area, you may not have the desire to build a new manufacturing plant for something that you don't currently make or 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 invest heavily in a in a brand new line within one of your existing facilities. So Comans play this critical role of bringing new products to market and and also uh, making uh, making existing brands more agile. Um, so it's all great, right? But there's a problem with the uh, brand owner Coman relationship. And the problem we find revolves around data and collaboration and communication. So there's all these scenarios that happen when you expose your brand to be manufactured by a third-party co-man. So just to use a couple of examples, let's say that I've never gotten into the snack bar business before and suddenly I'm making new snack bars. but uh, I've got a very proprietary recipe and I want to source one or a couple of the critical ingredients for that recipe on my own. And I want to maintain complete control over that ingredient and that supplier. But there may be other ingredients that go into that recipe that are you know, pretty standard. And I want the co-man to deal with that. Or I may not have expertise. Uh, they may deal with packaging, for example. So now I've got this strange blended situation where 
you know, the brand owner's responsible for controlling some things. The co-man is responsible for controlling other things. And there's got to be this massive flow of data and communication and collaboration going back and forth. So we continually heard about this problem from our customers. Every time we convened a customer advisory board and said, what should we be working on next? This co-man issue just repeatedly came up. So we really dived into it and started exploring, okay, what data needs to move around? What kind of collaboration needs to happen? And last year we launched uh, really, we believe the industry's first solution for brand owners and co-mans to collaborate together. And it's all based on our network where customers and suppliers come together and they share uh, information on networked ingredients. So now, for example, a, um, a, a brand owner can say, look, I'm gonna take these ingredients, you take the other ingredients, co-man, um, but I am gonna need to see the documents on those because at the end of the day, it's my brand. And if there's a recall issue or a safety issue, or an allergen mislabeling issue, at the end of the day, uh, I'm the one who gets stuck with that problem as the brand owner. So you're gonna need to send me all this documentation and all this data to protect me and to protect my brand. And likewise, the co-man's gonna say, well, you're gonna have to send me some information as well. So we've rolled out this solution that allows this data to flow very quickly, very seamlessly to the benefits of both sides. And we've also rolled out a new capability, we call it workspaces, where they can literally get online together. You can almost think of it as a tool like Slack, if, uh, if your listeners use that tool or are familiar with it, or Microsoft Teams, where people can collaborate within TraceGains, brand owner to co-man, and go back and forth and uh, exchange information, make each other aware of issues, uh, say, here's a problem I ran into. Here's a photo of the line this morning. Um, hey, I'm thinking about replacing an ingredient supplier. Here's all the documents for the new supplier. What do you think? And so on and so forth. So we think this is going to revolutionize the way that brand owners and commands interact with each other and both are going to benefit from it. Co-manufacturing has been around for a while, but is there anything else to elaborate on about how co-manufacturing is used um, as an alternative to traditional in-house production? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it brings products to market faster, as I mentioned. Um, it can be more cost effective, definitely in the short term, than having to invest all this capital to build a new line or a new plant. So it makes brand owners, uh, you know, more agile. It can save, you know, scarce resources, right? People can go focus on other things and rely on their commands uh, to do certain things. So um, I think it's it's all about efficiency and agility as being a lot of the benefits around command manufacture. The other thing I'll add is, you know, if if I've got a plant and I've got my own brand and I'm making snack bars, for example, or salad dressing or potato chips, whatever it is, I can actually increase my profits by doing some co-man work. So, you know, what I can do is I can be making my own brands first and second shift, and then I can be, you know, an outsourced co-man provider on third shift. And uh, we see more and more companies doing that. And uh, they actually, in some cases, 
they can have profits equal to or even exceeding their own brands by doing that co-man work on that, uh, you know, extra shift or when they have extra capacity. Because obviously, uh, you know, when they're doing co-man work, they don't have to incur all these marketing and sales costs and, um, you know, shelf space costs with the retailers that they have because that goes back to the brand owner. Well, Gary, um, you provided so much great information to think about and I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks, Aaron. Really, really enjoyed it. Appreciated you having me. listening to the Food for Thought podcast today, thank you for tuning in. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about everywhere you can listen to a podcast. Be sure to tune in next time as we talk more about the stories behind the headlines of the food and beverage industry. Take care. Have a great day.